Hi folks, Jack Spierko here. Today you are listening to an episode of TSP Rewind. Commercial-free versions of past episodes. Podcasts blast from the past. I put these up when I can't do a show due to professional commitments or rare vacations. These podcasts will appear in standard iTunes, Stitcher, and other feeds, but will be titled TSP Rewind Episodes and numbered accordingly. And today we are rewinding back to October the 12th, 2011. This was originally called Downward Class Migration and was episode 761 of the Survival Podcast. Quick word about why I'm doing a rewind today. I have a vacation coming up, so I'm taking a rewind day so I can make more rewinds. I also have to get ahead of things really, really quick here. This vacation kind of snuck up on me. But I will be leaving toward the end of the month and then coming back about a week into the following month. I'll be gone for about two weeks. Uh, also got a little bit behind today. We got new baby birds on the farmstead, like you've seen if you've been following me. And I got a bunch of stuff to catch up on. I got to get the expert uh, show ready for tomorrow. I just got a ton to do today, and I just decided to call an audible here and go ahead and run a rewind. Um, this is actually a rewind that's run as a rewind before, but a long time ago. Last time I ran this as a rewind was 2016. Um, and I was listening to it myself this morning, and I'm like, this is what I got to put up, because there's a lot in this. Again, this goes back to 2011, and so this is old. And you're going to hear me go through a litany of cities that declared bankruptcy or were on the verge of bankruptcy in 2011. You'll also hear me talk about the second side of the recession. Remember, by 2011, the green shoots had sprouted. We were coming out of the Great Recession, and it was all pie in the sky ahead. And for those that ain't been around a long time, back in 08, 09, as I was saying, here it comes, and there it was, and here it is, I was saying this isn't it. There'll be a giant false recovery. There'll be something in between these two before we really have the shit hit the fan. And it'll look really good. And the, when it comes around the other side is when we have real problems, when we have threats to the retirement of millions of workers in the United States through municipal retirement programs. You know, firefighters, teachers, city workers, everybody from the person that cleans the shit house. Uh, at the Capitol building to teachers and firemen and, every, and people that work on the cars. Everybody's going to be at risk here because we can't bail out all these cities. Now, given that this originally was done in 2011, it might give you a false sense of comfort. But what I'll tell you is none of the situations that I describe in this episode have gotten any better. None of them. In fact, they've gotten worse to a degree. What I want you to think about as you listen to this episode from 2011... This is one of the reasons, not the reason, but one of the reasons that things were done in a certain way during the whole COVID scamdemic. A lot of these cities, municipalities, etc. had just bukus of money during the greatest money printing thing that ever happened slammed into them and hit a little bit of a reset, but not really. This is something that's insurmountable over time. And now we, you know, our government is bailing out the retirement pensions of Ukraine. I don't know if you know that or not, but some of the money we sent them wasn't in weapons or defensive capabilities. It was literally to bail out their own government retirement uh, programs and their pension funds. While we have all the things you're about to hear, you're also going to hear the story of my father and the money that he made. When I originally did this, there were people that called bullshit on it. And I'm like, just go look up what construction workers in Union States made in the 70s. And they made about you know, $12 to $15 an hour. And if you got some overtime on that, you made really good money. And a person working heavy overtime at that point could make more money in a year than an average doctor did back then. That's all legit. Now, what I will tell you that mitigates that a little bit is generally those workers were laid off about three months a year and on minimal unemployment, which at the time was probably about 100 bucks a week. But the money that they were able to earn while they were working is still there. So instead, I, I, I do this in the episode. You'll hear me. I said, like, cut it in half. Cut it in half and compare it to today with inflation adjustment. And they were still light years ahead of where a person getting started today is with a college degree if you were willing to work hard and travel to work or whatever back then. And, and the, you know, when I really thought about this back when I was doing underground construction, which I reference here as well, I was making about the same money my dad was in the mid-90s, and my dad was doing this in the early 70s when I was just a baby crapping my pants in a diaper. It's kind of crazy. 
And it's only become more the case with inflation adjustment across time. So when you listen to this, it is very much a prophecy. Downward class migration was something that I believe I coined the term. I don't believe, I heard people talk about falling from the middle class, etc. But what I explained back about the time I did this was it's not falling out of the middle class. It's the entire middle class sliding down across the backside of the economic reality. Meaning that you being in the middle class just doesn't mean what it, it meant 20 years ago. You can be solidly middle class and have so much less than a person who was solidly middle class 20 years ago. And this is only compounding and getting worse. And it's, this is one of those things where people look, how did you know? Because it was mathematically, based on our behavior, the only place we could end up. And the things necessary to correct it would be very painful, and politicians would never want to do it. Plus, we have laid down a track record. We have no intention of fixing this whatsoever. So now I want you to listen to this episode from, what, 12 years ago? And really let it sink in. And then think about all the stuff we've been talking about lately with the United States really on the verge of losing its place as the source of the global reserve currency for trade. This is com- That's going to happen. You've got North Korea popping missiles off because they're not afraid anymore. You've got China on the, on the edge of invading Taiwan. My gut is they won't, but I could be wrong about that. But they are being way more aggressive than they have ever been in history because they know they can get away with it. And I think what you have right now is America's adversaries just waiting, just playing a waiting game, knowing that we have run out the clock on our time in the sun as a global empire. And rather than engage in a conflict with the United States of America... You wait until the United States of America is aware of the fact that it can no longer routinely engage in conflict. We can't afford it anymore. Our own country's falling apart. Our own infrastructure's falling apart. You know, a lot has been made. I just got an email about an explosion that killed 18,000 dairy cattle in Texas. Yeah? And the point of that was, you know, the person that sent it to me, that, hey, man, they're trying to get rid of our food supply. They're attacking us. I think there may be something... With all these food plants and everything blowing up and being shut down, like as far as, remember the formula plant being shut down for no good reason in the middle of COVID and all. But I think it's more what you're seeing here. These plants blowing up, these farms blowing up. Because you understand this, when they say a farm and one place has 18,000 cows that all were incinerated in an explosion, it's not a farm, it's a factory. It's not a factory farm. It, that's, that's being too kind to it. It's a factory. All these factories and industrial parks, etc., that are having these disasters, right? Part of it is we're more aware of it because it's being covered and it really wasn't in the past. And it's, this is the kind of thing that's always happened to a degree, but nowhere near to the volume. But also think of like train derailments, infrastructure problems overall. Instead of trying to look for a deep conspiracy in it, just ask yourself, what does infrastructure look like at the end of an empire's might, as it begins to go into decline, it looks just like this. It starts to fail everywhere. So even if there is some of it that might be nefarious, I think most of it is just the, the fact that the things that need seeing to have not been seen to for so long that the failure is a natural consequence of it. Most of you guys own firearms, so I want you to think about it this way. You have a nice gun, let's say uh, uh, just a standard issue 1911-45 pistol. Yeah? And even if you don't use that gun much, it needs some maintenance once in a while. It needs to be wiped down, etc. But instead of doing that, you just throw it up on the shelf in a closet because you're an irresponsible gun owner. You just leave it there. And you leave it there for 20 years, 30 years. What happens to it? It rusts. It seizes up. At some point, if you leave it there long enough, it actually has so many problems that you really don't, it's not really a good gun anymore. It can't really be saved. Or it takes a lot of work to save it. Unless it's some kind of collectible, it's probably not worth the effort to save it anymore because you haven't maintained it. If you're using it constantly, 
not cleaning it, not maintaining it, not keeping it wiped down, not worrying about the rust on it, right? Then it's going to break down even faster. Well, that's the infrastructure in this country. And it's it's the public infrastructure like railroads and stuff like that, roads, bridges, overpasses. But it's also the private infrastructure. And that's because we've moved into a place in society today where everything is measured by this quarter's revenue and expenses. And everything's become corporate. And the corporate entity that owns... Don't think there's an 18,000-head dairy farm owned by some little small farm family. Don't think that's not owned by a corporate interest. And that corporate interest doesn't care that these things need to be fixed. As long as... if Can we get around regulation with this? Can we push it another month? Can we capital defer another year? Yeah, okay, then do that. But we did it last year. We'll do it again. Do it again. And then this is what you get. You get industrial parks. You get food production facilities. You get factories that mask themselves as farms burning down, exploding, and failing. Because you're at the end of an empire where the the critical infrastructure has been ignored because we're too worried about diversity and drag queen shows and other shit like that. One thing I'll add here before I go ahead and drop you back into the past... It's also us being so distracted in fighting with each other. I put up a video today. They took it off YouTube. They said it would it violated it violated their policy about forcing animals into cruel situations. Well, this of course is by the people that think their avocado toast comes from Starbucks, right? They don't know where the avocado actually comes from. These are the people that think their chicken sandwich comes from freaking McDonald's or Popeyes. They don't understand there was an actual chicken at some point. The video was of two of my Bantam roosters fighting with each other. This was not a, a, like a cockfight that people gamble over. This is something that happens on farms every freaking day. They were really not even serious about it. They were sparring with each other. But the reason I videoed it and I put it up, I said this is a perfect analogy for the world today. These two roosters don't know it, but they're going to freezer camp this Saturday. It is time to do a great rooster purge again at Nine Mile Farm. And those two roosters... There's a cut to be made, maybe. I might be done with Bantams altogether, and maybe then all the roosters are gone. But one rooster might survive, but I promise you, the two that we're fighting today, they're both going to freezer camp. They are not in the running to be the one remaining rooster if I keep one. Yeah? So the only perp, and there's plenty of hens. The the number of rooster to hens, every rooster could easily have four hens right now. But no, they're going to fight. All the food they want, but no, they're going to fight. There's nothing they need that they don't have. But the nature of a rooster is to fight. I don't fault the roosters for it. But I'm making an analogy to humans. The only, the only purpose their fight is actually having, even though they think it's going to solidify which one of them is higher in the pecking order. Since they're all dead on Saturday, the only, the only thing that they're accomplishing is entertaining me, their owner and controller, who's going to kill them. But fight, they fight. They go ahead and fight. They're wasting the last of their rooster dash fighting with each other. And they don't understand that the situation around them is moving in one direction and they're running out of time. That's us fighting with each other over all this pointless bullshit. That's us fighting with each other over some tranny idiot being on a Bud Light can. Right? And people, I'm never drinking no Budweiser again. Get me a Michelob. Well, Anheuser-Busch owns that company, by the way. Oh, shut up. I'm trying to help you, bro. You said you wanted to boycott them. Like, this kind of shit. And I'm not saying that what's happening to our children through that is not an issue. But if you're drinking Bud Light Swill to begin with, what are you doing? What are you t- I mean, God, it's garbage beer to begin with. Why are you drinking it? This is just a distraction. All of this is a distraction. All of this is a game. Fox News claims that they're opposed to all this shit, but they put these idiots on all the time to razzle you up. Stop giving them attention. Stop giving them millions of dollars in free publicity. You know the Mike Pillow dude? Mike Lindell? If I'm Mike Lindell, I would be pissed. I'd be like, why is this tranny getting the type of coverage that I pay millions of dollars a year for for free? If, if, if you stand on this moral ground, right? Yeah. Like, you were giving these people... They're, they're all repped by talent agencies. It's all a gimmick. You're being played. While what you're about to hear from 20... I'm sorry, 12 years ago 
is going on in the background. The complete decay and crumbling, not just of the fabric of Western society, of our moral culture, but our infrastructure and our place in the world and our economic system. And, and while they're screaming and yelling at each other, both sides claiming the other side wants to cut Social Security, Social Security itself is about to blow up and go away within 10 years and be dead. But you want to fight. Like two dumbass roosters in a barnyard while the farmer laughs at you and thinks, I'm killing both of you Saturday anyway. Think about that as we take a rewind again. October 12th, 2011, originally... Episode 761, Downward Class Migration. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. You don't have to think another face in the crowd. Hi folks. Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast. It's always one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, coming to you once again from Hot Springs Village, Arkansas, high atop the Highway 7 Ridge Line from TSPN, the Survival Podcast Network headquarters, a.k.a. The Ant Hill. Today is Wednesday, October the 12th, 2011, and this is episode 761 of the Survival Podcast. Um, today we're kind of continuing on yesterday's show. I talked a lot yesterday uh, about the economic future of the United States. The one thing I really didn't talk about was what I'm calling downward class migration. I didn't really go into that. I kind of planned on it, but you know me. I get into a subject and I get passionate about it, and I might leave a part out. So I'm going to come back to that today. I'm also going to talk about you know the indicators that this stuff's happening right now. Uh, not so much the, the indicators that these things are going to happen, but the places where we're seeing this. I'm going to tell you about some things going on. It may be hard for you to believe that, that municipalities, cities, counties, states are already making some pretty tough decisions. As bad as that is, there is some hope there. Um, I'll try to elaborate on that as we go into that. But they're making tough decisions. That just means that maybe they're going to figure out how to balance the books. I don't know. I don't think so, but I'll be honest with you now, it's not all doom and gloom. Like I, I've been saying for a long time, my concern for America is really summed up in a term, and I, I've searched for it now, and, and it doesn't look like, you know, at least to me, anybody's really using that term. I think it's popped up in speech a few times, but uh, maybe you guys can help me out today. You know, if a couple thousand of you would do the Alex Jones thing where you guys go out and search it and make it a top search term on Google, Google, if you guys went out there and just searched that exact term, downward class migration, a couple hundred times during the day each, uh, we'd probably pop up on Google Trends. Uh, not really important, but if you want to do it, maybe maybe we could do that once in a while. I don't know. I don't have the reach he does. Um, but uh, But... To me, uh, it's a perfect description of what is, and this is the big thing, not going to happen, it's happening. People keep asking me, where is the financial, the double dip? Where is the Great Recession? Where is the Great Depression? Where is the Greater Recession? The second, Whatever you want to call it, and, and what I'm telling you is we're in the middle of it. And even though I told you yesterday that I see like one big upswing before we cascade down uh, into the true second side of this thing, the true you know, slam uh, that, that is awaiting us. I, I, I don't think that, that there's really like we're going to come out of it and go back into it. it. It's happening around you right now. And people are, are slipping from the middle class in, in record numbers. And there's a lot of things going on there. But a big thing is that inflation is hurting us. And inflation over time is hurting us. And this can only go on for so long before it begins to catch up to us. So the first uh, thing that I have for you today is uh, from uh, a post on uh, Business Journal, uh, Sacramento Business Journal, and uh, it's, it's just posted uh, yesterday. And uh, it's about the inflation rate over the last 50 years. And I just want you to take some numbers in and realize this isn't something coming. This is, you know, everybody, the hyperinflation's coming, and it's going to be like Weimar Germany, and you're going to need a wheelbarrow full of money to buy a sack of potatoes. And some, some clown corrected me in Salt Lake City and said, it was actually for a loaf of bread. I'm like, oh, please, right? Please, let's focus on, on, on common sense here. Um, so 
I, if I asked you what the inflation rate is, if we started in 1961 and went up to 2011 for the entire period of time, 61 to 2011, 50 years, the combined inflation rate, what type of return on your money would you have had to make? Some total, not annualized, to break even. What would you think it is? 200%? 300%? 350%? 400%? Do you think it's any of those? No. How about 450%? You think that's what it is? No. How about 500%? No. How about 550? Is that enough? 550% total inflation? No. How about 600%? No. How about 650%? Almost. The actual number from October 11, 61 to October 11, 2011, 657%. In this article... Uh, there's a little picture of a piggy bank of people saving their money the way they teach us to, you know, save your money. And here's what it says. If you had $100,000 in the bank in 1961, for example, the current equivalent would be $757,676, reflecting the 657% increase in the cost of living in the, ha- in the last half century. So $100,000 in 1961 bought what, what over three-quarters of a million dollars today. Now, you can't help but have people slip between the classes because here's the reality. The, the higher wage earners' wages have largely kept pace with inflation. But my father told me that in the 70s, before we moved to Florida, when I was just a baby, right after he got out of the military service, um, he was working construction in New Jersey. And he had to travel to do this because there wasn't a lot of construction in the coal region. But basically, he just went out and said, I want to work for the highway system, and uh, you know, I'll work for a private contractor, state, I don't care, whatever. He was effectively what today we would call a day laborer, except that the day laborer back then would get on with a crew, and you'd end up working with the same people all the time, and you would you know, get promoted, and you would get used more often, and things like that. He was making $14.50 an hour, and they would work about 60 to 70 hours a week, and you'd get overtime on that. That's a pretty good living in 73. It really is. He was able, uh, as a very young man in his early 20s, to buy a home for us, to provide for us on $14 an hour. In fact, he was able to save up so much money that by the time I was five years old, we moved to Jacksonville, Florida, and without going into debt, he opened up his own business, which he ran for 15 years. So, a guy making $14 an hour working road construction that didn't have a degree, didn't have any specialized skill whatsoever, was able to, in about four years, save up a grub stake, found a business, and go forward. The reason the number's important is a hell of a lot of jobs, just like that one, that today still pay fourteen fifty an hour. When I did underground construction work, directional boring, we paid general laborers at the time a little bit over minimum wage. That was about six bucks an hour. It's basically the same work my father did when he started out. Pick and shovel. So, yes, today, the guy with the office job that is a mid-level manager might make the hundred grand where he may have made thirty thousand or twenty five thousand back in the sixties. But the guy that does the blue-collar work, and that is the backbone of America, has seen their wages eroded by this. And it can again, it can only go on for so long. So the solution has been, send your kids to college. Send your blue-collar guy of the 60s works his ass off, sends those kids through the 70s and 80s to college, builds up Gen X, and the entitlement generation, the me generation... And then that little game can only go on for so long until you realize something. In the 60s, if you had a degree and you went to work for a mid-size or small corporation, you were going to end up in upper management. It was going to happen because the vast majority of people in that company didn't have degrees. Right? You can bet the receptionist didn't have a degree. You can bet the 10 guys making phone calls 
to clients and prospective clients. Basically, the sales force didn't have degrees. Maybe their manager did. Maybe he did. But if you had a company with 200 people in it back in 1970, 10 to 20% maximum of those people were college educated. And they occupied the 10 to 20% upper structure of the corporation. They ran things. And people from the lower levels could come up into that, just like they still do today. But you were almost guaranteed the upper stratification layer if you had a college degree. Until what? Until we saturated the market with people with degrees. Until we devalued the degree by creating a surplus of degreed quote-unquote professionals. Do you understand that all commodities work the same way money does? Money is just a commodity. Everybody out there understands this. And those of you that struggle with me on this everyone in college thing, I want you to think about it in a new way today because it's so important because it is what's happening now. And it's what's going to continue to erode at, at the value of, of an income level. If you only have 10% of the population with a college degree, a college degree has a, a premium value. Okay? If you have 50% of the population, the value of the degree must fall. It has to. It's just like if you had a million dollars in circulation in a city, and it was a closed city, and that million dollars was all the currency they had. The currency is relatively strong in the city. It might be strong or not strong outside the city. Think of it like an old medieval city-state. If I triple or quadruple, or let's go from a million to $10 million dollars in currency in that city that's flowing through as part of the velocity of money within the system, the value of each dollar or space credit or whatever you want to call it or shell or bead goes down. More in supply equals less value per unit. Very, very simple. So if we had a time and place in the country where 10 to 20% of our population were degreed professionals, we know that that degree had greater value. And it's even worse in the educational system because a dollar is a dollar is a dollar. It's made out of the same ink and the same paper and it's the same dimensions. A quarter and a quarter is a quarter. A microchip is a microchip is a microchip. If they're built to the same standard, they perform identically. Human beings do not perform identically. If we've gone from a place where 20% of the best, the most intelligent, the most motivated, go to higher education to a point where 60% do, the overall value, the overall standard has to be dropped to accommodate people that perform at a lower level. And at the same time, the cost of going to school has gone, gone, gone up dramatically, faster than the rate of inflation. So, Contract, this is, this is the, the downward class migration. 1972, 73, 74, my father, $14.50 an hour on a 60-hour work week on average. That's what he told me his average work week was, 60 hours a week. Hard work. Um, if you do the math on that with a one-and-a-half overtime rate, you, you end up with about $1,015 a week was his average gross income. Uh, if you take that, And you multiply that by 50 weeks a year, saying you take two weeks off. They didn't get vacation pay or anything like that. They didn't get much on benefits. But that meant that my father is a, is a 21-year-old kid uh, with no real skill set out of the military, back from, from overseas, we'll leave it at that, uh, made about $50,000 a year in, in, in the early 1970s as a construction worker. Now, <laughs> let, let, let's look at what that actually means with some inflation calculations. Okay, well, when I drop um, 1973, let's just kind of split the difference there, into this consumer price index inflation calculator, uh, put 1973 in there, $100,000 back then would be worth today about a half a million. So my father earning $50,000 today would be earning the equivalent of a quarter million dollars a year by working 60 hours a week as a construction worker. Quarter million dollars a year. Equivalent purchasing power at $50,000, roughly. Knock it down by 50%, folks. Let, let's say it's 50% wrong with all this math and hoopla, $125,000. How many construction workers, 20 years old without a college degree, 
can live a $100,000 a year income lifestyle. I know a lot of you people are out there in college, and you can't find a $100,000 a year job. I know a lot of you people out there that have been to college, have degrees, work your ass off, have 10 years of experience, and can't find a $100,000 a year job. Where you could get the equivalent job as a blue-collar worker in the 1970s. Of course, we're slipping in class structure. Of course, there's downward class migration. And let me add the big thing. My father, who went out and bought a house uh, and made payments on it, had interest on the mortgage payments. He had no credit cards. We, we've all been that way in my family forever. I was the first dummy that went down that path, and I'll be the last dummy if I have anything to say about it that ever will. Um, but the big thing he didn't have was student loan debt. So think about this. Let's say the person pulls off a half rate, goes to college, and comes out with the equivalent of $125,000 a year in income today because they hit a home run rate out of school. But they're carrying $150,000 of debt that they're going to be paying on for 20 or 30 years if they do it the way Sally May and everybody else wants you to. They have less money even with the same equivalent income level. And they had to work a lot harder to get there, and they started a lot later in life. They're dragging that boat anchor the whole way through. And, of course, today, the next thing that happens is Visa and MasterCard throw cards at them. So debt actually anchors you into a downward class migration. It allows you to live as though you're existing at a higher class level, but have the savings power and the sustainability and, and the resiliency of a much lower class. Because the day the job stops, you're not bankrolling money, folks. You're spending it as fast as it comes in. And there are things that are going to eventually kick this up another level and cause greater recession. And one of them that I've been talking about over and over again is municipal defaults. Well, here's one today. Here's a city that I called almost a year ago. I put it out on TRTAM.com. Um, I'm reading today, October 12, 2011, on Bloomberg. Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, files for bankruptcy, lawyer says. October 12, Bloomberg, the city of Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, faces state takeover. Its finances filed for bankruptcy protection following a vote by the city council, according to a lawyer for the council. Mark D. Swartz, a Brian Maher, Pennsylvania-based lawyer and former head of municipal bonds for Prudential Financial, Inc., Mid-Atlantic Region said he filed the documents by fax to the federal bankruptcy court last night. The filing couldn't be confirmed with the U.S. Bankruptcy Court in Harrisburg. The state's capital of 49500 faces a debt burden five times its general fund budget because of an overhaul and expansion of trash-to-energy incinerator that doesn't generate enough revenue. So they put a trash-to-energy incinerator in, and it's not paying for itself. Another failed green initiative. Uh, this is the last resort, Swartz said in an interview after the council voted 4-3 to seek bankruptcy protection. They're at their wit's end. While bankruptcy would mean the loss of state aid under the law passed in June, it is preferable to the proposed recovery plans of Councilwoman Susan Brown Wilson. For those who don't remember the last time I talked about Harrisburg, basically here's what the state said to them. If you want state aid, you will put off filing for bankruptcy. And you won't do it until next year. In fact, till the end of next year. After what, folks? The election. Because Pennsylvania is a key state run by a Democratic governor. So the state basically put a gun to the head of Harrisburg and said, we'll take away your state aid if you file before the election. You can read my article on it if you want to. Again, it's at trtam.com. should be hard to find. I don't really write that many articles over there. So Harrisburg eventually said, well, we can't do this. Now, here's the thing. I said this would happen, and I said it would happen for a really weird reason that most people wouldn't even think of. When this law got passed by the state, threatening to take their state aid if they went into bankruptcy, Harrisburg was working with their creditors and saying, look, we don't want to file bankruptcy. If you work with us, we won't file bankruptcy. So they were using bankruptcy as a negotiating leverage tool with all their creditors, getting new terms, getting more preferential treatment, lowering interest rates, extending their, their, giving them time to accommodate. When the state stepped in and threatened to take away their state aid, all of Harrisburg's creditors said, 
go screw it. You're not going to do it now. We know you're not going to do it now. Basically, they, the state took away their ability to hold it up and say, we'll do it. And they made the creditors stand firm and not negotiate new terms, which, of course, accelerated the problem, exasperated the problem, and put Harrisburg into a point where they had to declare bankruptcy. Now, if you've been paying attention, you know this is not the first city or county in America to go bankrupt. There's been a few, and there's more coming. There is an avalanche coming. Uh, another article I wanted to bring to your attention today. All of these will be linked from today's show notes. Um, this is an article on uh, on Fox Business, and uh, just came out a few days ago, uh, the 5th of October. And here's what it's called, Nine American Cities Going Broke. And I'm not going to read the whole article to you. I just want to read the nine cities, their credit rating, uh, their revenue versus their debt. Camden, New Jersey, credit rating BA2, which is not very good. 2009 revenues, $181 million and some change. Uh, 2009 debt, $103 million. Median household income, $25,000. Now remember... My father, in the 70s, working construction in New Jersey, because it was better to go to New Jersey than stay in Pennsylvania, made a $50,000 income in 1973 by working 60 hours and working really hard keeping his job. All right? A um, little bit on Camden. Camden suffers from high unemployment, high poverty, and a weak tax base, you think. Uh, it's like a crime capital of the world. The city's median household income is less than half of the national median income and is the lowest of all municipalities on this list. I'm not going to read any more for you, but I read that because it said something very, very important that hopefully you just snapped to. The city's median household income is less than half that of the national median income, meaning the median national income is right around $50,000. Again, I hate to point back to dear old dad, but my dear old dad was making that in the 70s as a construction worker. Next one, Stratford County, New Hampshire, credit rating BA2. Uh, 2009, they brought in $36 million in revenue, uh, but they added $23 million in debt. Uh, that's like making $36,000 a year and adding $23,000 a year in debt to your household. Median household income, $58,000. Next one. Uh, Riverdale, Illinois, credit rating BA2. 2009 revenues, $8 million. Uh, 2000, and I'm rounding the off, these off. 2009 debt, $9 million. Median household income, forty grand. <laughs> are you starting to see a picture here? These guys are even worse. Uh, they brought in $8 million, uh, and they spent $9 million they didn't have, which means they spent about $17 million on an income of eight. You've you got to really think about this. Um, Salem, New Jersey, credit rating BA3. 2009 revenue, $7 million. 2009 debt, $10 million. So they are the family that makes $70,000 a year and spends $170,000. That's how they're managing their books right now. And their median household income, $28,397. Detroit, Michigan, credit rating BA3. 2009 revenues, $1.2 billion. 2009 debt, $2.4 billion. Okay, so Detroit is the American family that earns $120,000 a year and spends $240,000 a year. I'm just breaking it down in numbers that you can understand. Median household income in Detroit, $29,447. Harrison, New Jersey. Remember, New Jersey is where my old man worked. It was a great place to go work construction in the 70s. Credit rating, BA3. 2009 revenues, $32 million. 2009 debt, $92 million. So, this is the family earning $30,000 a year, spending 120 Because they're spending all of they earned plus the new debt. You got that right? Those two numbers have to be added together to make this work. Jefferson County, Alabama. I've talked about them, too, on TRTAM, uh, about them going broke. 2009 revenues, $309 million. $309 million, that's what they brought in. Um, 2009 debt. 1.3 billion. 1.3 billion. Take in 309 million. Spend 1.3 billion. Median household income, $44,718. Pontiac, Michigan, who I called the canary in the coal mine, uh, back when they went under and they went into receivership over a year ago, I said this was the city to look to to see what's going to happen everywhere else. Uh, credit rating, CAA1, means you're probably not going to get paid, is what it means. 
2009 revenues, $46 million, a so little, little city. Debt, $99 million. So this is the, this is the household basically earning about $50,000, spending $150,000 a year. Taking on $50,000 in new debt a year at that income level. Median household income, $32,199. Central Falls, Rhode Island. Credit rating CAA1. 2009 revenue, $17 million. 2009 debt, $18 million. Median household income, $33,520. This is what's going on all over America today. And as I said, some cities are making uh, some tough decisions about how to deal with not having enough money. So this next article is on NBC Chicago. Let me read the headline for you. And you just might say to yourself, what? And this came out Monday, October 10th. So this came out yesterday by Greg Wilson. Cash-strapped Topeka may stop prosecuting domestic violence. Read the article because you know you got to hear this for it to really hit you. Cash-strapped Topeka, Kansas, has decided to stop persecuting domestic violence cases in order to save money. The city council announced a proposal October 4th after the Shawnee County District Attorney's Office announced it could no longer prosecute misdemeanors, including domestic violence cases. The city's maneuver may even require repealing the part of the city code that, ba- that bans domestic battery. Major Bill Blunton told the Topeka Capital Journal city officials to me- take domestic violence seriously and would be dead wrong to assume offenders won't be prosecuted. Dispute is over who would pay for it. Shawnee County has already dropped 30 domestic violence cases since it stopped pr- prosecuting the crime on September 8th. Some 16 people have been arrested for misdemeanor domestic battery charges and then released after charges were not filed. Court, uh, County District Attorney Chad Taylor has reportedly offered to review all misdemeanor cases filed in Topeka for potential prosecution, including those now handled by the city's municipal court in exchange for a one-time payment of $350,000 from the city. The Topeka YWCA said the problem must be resolved. When an abusive partner is arrested, the victim's danger level increases, Becky Dickinson, interim director of the YWCA Center for Safety and Empowerment, told the Capital Journal. The abuser will often become more violent in an attempt to regain control. Letting abusive partners out of jail with no consequences puts victims in incredibly dangerous positions. You think... You think, you think if some guy smacks his wife around, the police come arrest him, take him to jail, and they let him out of jail without even prosecuting him? You think if, if, if his wife and many abusive women will take them back in, uh, do, uh, do you think the next time that he thinks about smacking her around, he might smack her around a little better? Because he knows they're not gonna do anything? So, Topeka has decided the way to solve the cash problem is simply to stop prosecuting people that beat their wives. They take it seriously. They want somebody else to do it, but um, they're not going to. Okay, this is, this is another canary in the coal mine. All right? For those that don't know the story, if I use that term a couple times today, if you don't know the story of the canary in the coal mine, it works like this. When you mine coal... Uh, there's a potential for uh, different gases, specifically carbon dioxide uh, and methane, to build up down in the mine. And if you don't have good air circulation, all of a sudden, especially if it's, if it's carbon dioxide, carbon monoxide, uh, either or, uh, in different scenarios, you don't really smell it or taste it. You start to get sleepy and you fall down, you go to sleep and you die. Right? So there's just no smell there. So what what the, what the miners learned was a canary was much more susceptible to these gases than they were. So you take a little cage with the canary down in the mine, and if the canary you know falls off his perch and dies, well you get the hell out of there. And the canary would go first before the miners. So when you look at things like Pontiac, Michigan, going into receivership earlier this year, or you look at a city basically saying, well, here's one crime, we'll just stop prosecuting and leave it to somebody else to prosecute. Basically, they're probably going to turn to the county and say, this should be a county-level offense. Instead of the city prosecuting, I want you guys at the county level. I want the sheriff's department take this over and the county-level prosecutor take this over. Put them in county lockup instead of city lockup. You know, And the counties eventually start turning to the feds. So why don't you guys make this federal crime, take it over, you've got more resources than us. There's, there's two big problems here. One, there's less resources to protect the innocent. But two, the local authority keeps getting handed up higher. Alright? 
So local law enforcement becomes more and more in the hands of state and federal officials. Does anybody really think that's a good idea? The state and the fed should be the ones that come in when the local county level and the local city level drop the ball and are protecting people and come in and prop it up and then say, you guys take care of this or we're going to be back. Where what you're getting here now instead is a handoff. You guys do it. We can't. So what you see here is a clear indicator that criminals are going to be more likely to get away with what they're doing in the future. There'll be less prosecution, less imprisonment, less law enforcement, down to a level of, we'll just let them go at a higher rate and embolden them because cities can't pay their bills. You don't think that's going to create a downward class migration? I mean, that's really what this is all about today. That's really what I'm trying to get across to you. That this isn't something that's going to happen. I've been saying it wrong. I've been telling you that it's going to happen. And, and the reality is it's been happening. It's gone from a place that a guy could make an income. Just a hard-working man could go out and make an income in the 70s that would be worth somewhere between fifty dollars and $200,000 a year in today's money. You know, And the $50,000 is at the bottom end to where you're lucky if you have a $50,000 a year job today. And the only reason that things look like we have gotten to be better off is because of debt. Consumer debt has grown at exponential levels from the 60s till today. I'm not telling you anything you don't know. I'm trying to give you a new way to think about it and what it means for you. And then what I have to say to you is when people can't pay the bills, when people start to fail to pay the bills, what happens to that credit? It contracts. And if we take people who have been living one, two, or even three classes above their income level based on a debt-based system, and we pull that rug out from underneath them, where do they end up? Exactly where they've really been all along. Do you understand? Do you understand that the person making $50,000 today is living at a level that we really have to call very much in the lower middle class. But most $50,000 income earners are living a lifestyle that's very akin to what somebody in 1975 would have called the upper middle class. It's two, three rungs, depending on how much you want to slice up. And the middle class has to be sliced up into a lot of rungs, folks. It really does. It's, a, it's, it's the biggest class, at least it used to be. There's so many people right now that are really living at what you can only define as a poverty level, but they don't look impoverished. And then we also have to look at the vast numbers of people today that are being held into a class with food stamps, welfare, and unemployment, and other government-based security benefits. Okay. Now, I'm not putting you down if you're on any of those. I'm really not, especially unemployment. To get unemployment, you first have to work. And unemployment never adds up to the money that you were earning. But if cities don't have enough money to prosecute a guy that beats his wife up, how long is it before states don't have enough money to pay an unemployment claim or a WIC payment or a Social Security, or I mean a Medicare payment at the state level? How long is it before the states and the cities en masse have to turn to the federal government and go help us? And I want to be clear. All these cities' names I gave you today, Harrisburg, right, all this stuff, you know, you're talking about billions of dollars. You're talking about the federal government can rubber stamp that crap and send it out and, and save any one of these cities without even raising a tax bill. They can print the money. They can take the money from some crap program they don't really need. I mean, any one of them can be saved like that. You can't save a 100 or a 1,000. And that's what we're looking at. That's what we're looking at eventually as we go. And this is why I think we can hold out till 2015, 2016 before this blows up. If 10 or 20 fall, they can be propped up. They can even be ignored and allowed to die. It's, it's the overwhelming numbers. It's when there's 100 falling in, in, in a quarter, three-month period, that it becomes overwhelming. It's when that happens, and there's so many people disrupted by that. There's so many people who were counting on that retirement payment, teachers and city workers and what have you, and that money's gone or cut in half. 
And then they get mad and they riot and they protest and they burn a building down or turn a car over or march. We deserve our pay. We deserve our pay. Whatever the hell they do. Folks, do you understand the fundamental law of you teachers, right? Sometimes you say I get on you a lot, but there's a reason. Because the mentality is you're just going to give us what we have coming. If you're a teacher, even a first grade teacher uh, that teaches freaking music, you should understand enough mathematics to understand that you can't get more than is there from anything. Johnny has two apples, right? And Johnny has six friends. How many apples can Johnny give to every one of his freaking friends? One third of a freaking apple. They all can't have an apple. Come on. Get it through your freaking heads. This is the future. I don't care what you think you're entitled to. I don't care how hard you work for it. I don't care how much you genuinely deserve it. The money is running out and it's going to run out and you're going to do without And that means that right now, today, you need to come to grips with that fundamental, factual reality. And if I'm wrong by 10 years, you're still screwed. If we can hang on until 2020, 2025, most of you out there are old enough, it's still going to punch you in the face. And if you keep living the way we've lived for the last 50 years, it's not going to punch you in the face. It's going to be like a giant stepping on your head and squishing your guts out through your feet. That's what's going to happen to this country. There is no way, no way, let me say it one more time just so you get it, no way to avoid it right now. If we gutted the government, if we gutted it today, if we went to an honest public money system today, if we screwed over half of our creditors today, we're still going to go through a real, honest-to-God depression, and we're going to still have a massive erosion of the value of the dollar in the best-case scenario. There is no, let me say it again, no way out now. It's too late. But it doesn't mean that we pack up the streets and everybody goes away and it's over and there's no more United States. And anybody that thinks that, you've been watching too much TV and reading too many fan fiction novels. You don't understand economics, you don't understand society, and you don't understand the actual value of the country. Alright? No one's coming to repossess us because we will blow them the hell up. And you could have the grid down in half the country and they'll still launch the missiles and they'll still blow crap up if they have to. So no one's coming to take it away. Right? Understand that. It's just not happening. So it's here. So it's like a business going into a bankruptcy. There's still an asset there. There's still a value there. And those left behind in the middle of the mayhem have an opportunity to rebuild it stronger and better than it was before. But, and this is the part where the optimist goes too far the other way, it sucks when you're there. It requires sacrifice when you're there. I've taken companies that were growing that hit a stumbling block. And we've had to back up. And we never went to bankruptcy because we caught it in advance. And the people that stayed with me had to sacrifice alongside of me. There were times when I was running companies and I took a pay cut so that I didn't have to cut the pay of my employees. But I only ever paid myself so much. So there was times when they had to take a pay cut too. I sit down in a small company with five employees and say, everybody here is getting a 20% pay cut. <laughs> okay, or I can fire one of you. I'll come back in an hour, and you tell me if you want me to tell you which one of you's fired. By the way, the four of you that are left are going to have to pick up, and each one of you is going to have to do 20% of the guy who's fired's job to get the same pay. And I think our productivity is going to go down, and eventually I'm going to have to cut your pay anyway, where if we kept that person and did this, we'll probably still be here and be rebuilding, and I'll be able to put your pay back inside of a year. You guys decide, and usually what happens is, oh, wait, 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 we, we can make this work. But it can't be done without sacrifice. If you got a union saying, yo, you're not going to cut our salary, fine, then you're going to get nothing. 
Then I'll close the plant. I'll close the shop. And this is where the nature... See, I'm trying to bring it to something you can understand. A five-person company. It's pretty clear in a five-person company, if I don't have the money to pay everybody for the next six months, if I'm going to have a 20% running shortfall over six months in a company that size, I am going to be bankrupt in six months unless I take this measure. I have to cut the expense somehow. And we have to go out and we have to earn new revenues and we have to grow beyond the deficit before I can put people back to where they were. It's so easy to understand. And if it's a small shop but it's got union help in it, I'll close it before I'll go bankrupt. I'll send you back to the hall. That's easy to understand. But then we move it up to a city or a county or a nation and people just don't think the rules apply anymore. That's the school district. Look at all the houses paying. I don't care how many people are paying property taxes. The system is a bloated corpse. It's been funded with debt. Every city in America is funded with debt today. Not just the debt-based money I'm talking about from yesterday. All of them are borrowing on bonds to pay today based on tomorrow's earnings. How long do you think that can go on? So what you absolutely must do today, starting right now, and from this point forward, is you must start now living on less than you earn. Period. I don't care if you've come through this like like a rose. You know, I don't care how you've come through it so far. You need to be prepared. And if you're still living the high life and you just threw some food in the back closet or whatever and you listen to my show because it's entertaining and amusing and you pick some good things up once in a while, but basically you're still living the same way, I'm not doing my job. You're not getting it. I want everybody to try an experiment for me. I want everybody out there that's not already in this situation to try an experiment for me. I want you to live your next one month as though mom and dad or mom or dad, depending on who has an income, just got a 30% cut in pay. That you walked in and you had that meeting with me. I was your employer and I said, sorry, I'm cutting everybody's pay 30%. And you went home and said, honey, I got bad news. And she said, yeah, me too. And you say, Jack cut my pay by 30%. And you go, I work for him too. He has another company. He cut my pay by 30%. too. We have 30% less money. I want you to live for one month that way. It won't kill you, okay? If you're sitting there going, I don't know, shut up and do it. You'll have all of the money in this thing called savings at the end of the month. And if you insist on spending it then, you can spend it. It's not going to happen. You're going to look at it and go, holy crap, we have some actual money. Put it away. The day of reckoning is coming. You can complain about the way your government at the city, the state, the county, and the federal level runs their finances. And you should. But if you run your finances... The same way. And the reality is you can't do as bad a job as they do, but you can do damn close. Because if you went as bad as they did, you'd be bankrupt in a year. Right? You can't the, the, the scenarios they gave you the family earning a hundred, spending two fifty a year, they can't do that for more than two or three years at the absolute limit. Absolute limit of what they can do. Cities, states, counties have the power of tax. They can run this Ponzi scheme for a lot longer. They can borrow Peter to pay Paul. You can't. Right? And then they can borrow from Simon to pay Peter, right? And then they can borrow from Andrew to pay Simon. And they can do that, but even in that system, you're going to run out of freaking apostles to borrow from. So no matter what you do, they are going to screw it up. They, this is coming. It could not be more clear. It could not be more telegraphed. This is the law. I was talking to my, my friend Neil Franklin. Uh, my, my business partner from the past yesterday, and he was talking about this recession, second great recession, all this stuff, and he was saying, you know, I'm not sure this or that, and he's the guy usually telling me, and I said, Neil, this is the longest telegraph punch in history. You know, if you can't see exactly what's coming, you're not paying attention. What it will look like and when it will happen, I can't tell you. I can tell you a lot of things that will be involved, component parts, but the exact formulation of what it looks like... It, you know, there'll be a lot more crime. Does that mean that you'll be crime where you're at? Maybe, maybe. I don't know. But I'm going to tell you. I'm going to tell you. The hard times are coming. And what I said yesterday is true. The morality in the population is not where it was in 1929. 
The population of this nation in 1929 had a morality that was far superior than the morality base in our population today. There were certain things that good men just would not do in 1929 that people will do in a heartbeat today. In 1929, a man would stand at the head of his table and say, I'll feed this family. There's work 500 miles away. I won't see you for six months, guys, but I'm going to go off and do whatever it is, and I'm going to pay the bills. In 2011, that same man goes down to a building, sticks his hand out, and says, give me what I got coming. And that works right up to the point where the hand stays empty. And I don't care if 50% of the people out there, and I believe the majority of people listen to this show, you have the morality base. I don't care if 70% have the morality base of the average person in 1929. That's 30% that don't. 30%. You want to do a little math on that? In a nation of 300 million, that's 90 million people. That's 90 million people that will tear the nation to shreds to get what they believe they've got coming. That's why I keep telling you these protests, I don't care where they're at now. I'm telling you where they're going. They're going to turn violent. And if it ain't this year, it's next year. If it's not next year, it's the year after. It's coming. It's going to happen. And you've got to be in a position in your life where you can do more with less. And you've got to do it now while you still have time. If you don't, if you don't, other than if you get drunk and kill somebody or something like that, I'm going to make you a promise today that I don't want to make you, but I have to. Over the next 20 years of your life, it will be the single biggest regret you will ever have. that You had the time and you had the knowledge and you didn't act. So do it. You just got a 30% pay cut. Okay? A lot of people just got a 100% pay cut yesterday. They're managing. You do it with 70% of your income for the next month or two. I dare you. I dare you to do it. And then you tell me 30 days, 60 days from now, what your life is like. And your life will probably be a lot like it already is. And I'll give people permission to break this rule. All right? In one situation. If you're big on debt, you could the 30% pay cut, you take the surplus and apply it to your debt. That's the only way you're allowed to spend this money in the next 60 days. But mostly, I just want you to do it. I just want you to get by. Get by on 70% of your income. And here's the big thing. If you can't do it, you got to make some hard decisions. Because it's going to happen anyway. What I'm telling you right now is over the next couple of years, if your income remains flat and you don't lose your job and everything stays the same, you're going to have a 30% erosion of your income anyway through inflation. You're going to have to do it anyway. If you can't do it now, you won't be able to do it then. If you can pull it off, and most of you can, you'll start to reevaluate and reformulate your life. And all of a sudden, you'll actually have this stuff called savings. And all of the stuff that you want to do, to make yourself more independent and more self-reliant, you'll be able to do. Look for the waste. Trim the fat. Do it for a month. One month. That's all I'm asking. I bet you you can do it. And if you can do it for a month, you can do it for a year. And if you can do it for a year, you can do it for a lifetime. And then, let me ask you this. Over your lifetime, if you had 30% of your income, put away for yourself and your family, either invested in things that last a lifetime or actually held in, in an asset like cash or some of it in gold, some of it in silver, anything. How much better off would you be in your golden years? Remember the guiding tenets. Everything we do to prepare for disasters or emergencies tomorrow should make our life better today, even if nothing goes wrong. Living that lifestyle today will make you better off if I'm right and better off if I'm wrong. It is a no-lose proposition. Can't do 30, try 20. Try 20. Don't go any lower. Don't cheat yourself. Don't set the bar too low. Remember the old movie Dodgeball? Uh, Peter LaFleur was the main character's name. I think it's Vince Vaughn. is the guy that played him. And this girl that was a banker said, you know, you don't have any goals in your life. And he said, I find that if I set a goal, I might not meet it. Right, so I said very low goals basically was the point so that I can make sure I meet my goals. Nothing is gained by that. 
set a meaningful goal in your life and meet it. I promise you, you won't regret it. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life. Times get tough. Before you stay down. Well, I had to leave my family when the shot heard around the world. Called up those British bastards that put me to the sword. Well, I died a lonely subject, a king and monarchy. Yeah, I'm the first American who made this country free. Done with the founding truth. I gave my life.